Welcome and thank you for tuning in to What the Fans Don't See podcast. This is your host, Nick Simi. Today will be a solo mission where I'll be talking about the transition that I had out of football, most notably my strength and conditioning internship that I completed at Ohio State in the springtime of 2018. But before going any further, I wanted to open it up to the audience and ask really if there's any topics that you might see on social media or things about my experience that I haven't talked about yet that you'd want me to elaborate on further. Whether you have my phone number, great. Send me a text, shoot me a call. If not, send me suggestions on Instagram at NickSeeMe underscore. I'll be looking forward to any feedback and suggestions that you have because if anything, gives me ideas and it gives content for you guys. So it's positive on both ends. So, so thank you for doing that in advance. So to touch on the internship, I first wanted to start with my why. So coming from Ashton University, not having football for some time, and then having it again, fortunately, at Ohio State, I knew that it wasn't going to last forever. I was starting to prepare my mind in the final weeks of the season. And I knew that physical therapy was the profession that I wanted to proceed with in the future. There, I was you know, battling back and forth between different options. Um, I felt that physical therapy was best for me, ended up applying in the fall, heard back from the University of Dayton and accepted a position there in the springtime, I want to say in mid to late December. So during that time, we were in bowl prep. We were about to play USC in the Cotton Bowl down in Dallas. As I got the admission to the University of Dayton, my the wheels started to turn in my head. And I wanted to take the experience that I had as a player, but also develop myself as a professional while I was at Ohio State. I wanted to utilize all the resources that I had while I was here. And I still had another four months or so and for the exercise science kinesiology major at Ohio State, they require you to have an internship in your final semester. So you don't, ne you don't have as nearly many classes um, or intensive course load at that time. They want you to focus more so on the real life experience. So with that in mind, I approached Coach Mick and Coach Toos. Coach Toos would oversee the internship program for the strength and conditioning staff. And so I, I mentioned you know, hey, I had this opportunity at the University of Dayton. I think it will be great. Um, very interested in it, have past experiences with physical therapy, but I want to integrate sport performance and the strength and conditioning mindset into it. Because in my mind, I think it's really important when working with athletes, not just understanding the rehab side in the early phases, but also knowing what they're, what the demands of the sports that they're going back to. Um, and I think that is something that when you work with the best of the best, they're able to give you that insight. And then you're almost able to bridge that gap backwards from that higher end thinking to maybe, you know, giving an athlete a blueprint in their early stages of rehab to where they can progress and, and where they need to get back to in order, not only for the athlete to physically be capable of the demands, but also mentally feel comfortable going back to a sport where they might've had a serious injury that, you know, just building their confidence back up. So fortunate enough, um, they were welcoming me with open arms. I was a little bit overwhelmed going in, not going to lie, because <laughs> similar to me stepping on and walking on Ohio State and joining the defensive line where I didn't really have much experience before, I never had a strength and conditioning internship before Ohio State. And so I knew that it was something that was very competitive to get into. Um, was fortunate enough to build great relationships with the strength and conditioning staff as I loved training during my time there. But I, you know, knew that I also had to prove myself as a professional on another, another level. So I, I took the same mindset of kind of focusing on areas that I might've been weak in. For me, it was like programming and periodization, um, understanding more so the why behind the training. I kind of knew uh, generally why you would be completing different tasks, but more so understanding it on like a weekly level, you know, how you structure workouts during the off season, how you ramp that up for spring ball. So I was really looking forward uh, to that insight. So after the season concluded, Ohio State gives about, I'd say one or two weeks off for the entire team. They're able to you know, travel back home before the semester starts again able to spend, you know, or maybe make up a holiday that was missed during bowl prep. And the week before the entire team comes back onto campus, the freshmen that enroll early to Ohio State, they come in and 
they move into their dorms. They're trying to get acclimated to Ohio State's campus and the soon-to-be schedule of Ohio State football. And with that, the strength and conditioning staff begins, again, as you can imagine, a week early to prepare. As those athletes are coming in, we have to perform a lot of baseline testing on them. I won't necessarily go into each test that we performed, uh, but a lot of it was like skinfold testing, measuring body fat percentage, a lot of their baseline strength measures, speed measures, height, weight. Um, also some stuff that will go with it is like a vertical, their L cone or three cone test, their pro shuttle, and really just to get a baseline for in the future, they'll maybe test it every year, every other year. And then the athletes will be able to see progress as they go through the program, not only on the field and the sports side, but in the strength and conditioning side as well. And, and they'll also use that to see if they need to make any adjustments to their program for the following year. They do a great job of self-evaluation. So they might say we might've had injuries in this area. So we might need to implement um, a certain style of training or maybe hit a certain muscle group in a different way. Or, you know, to, to maybe communicate with the nutritionist and say, you know, this athlete has been increasing body fat percentage, even though the rest of the team hasn't. So maybe it's something where we can talk with and um, help a you know, single or a group of athletes out that might be struggling with that. So we perform that, that first week of testing, not really as intensive as a strength and conditioning intern. A lot of it's, you know, just trying to wrap your head around the new style of I guess I would say the new role that you're assuming coming from a player and then also going into more of a strength and conditioning coach. I think that in itself was very interesting of a transition for me because I was friends and buddies with a lot of guys on the team. So it was an interesting relationship to kind of toe that line between being friends, but also almost, I hate to say this, but almost being your, their superior at the time. So you're trying to, you know, implement things that were coming from Coach Mick and the other strength and conditioning coaches. So you had to hold that level of professionalism. So I wanted to give a day in the life of a Division One strength and conditioning intern. So that first week, again, is kind of an anomaly. Um, but I just want to go into a singular day. And I think I can talk about maybe some changes between the offseason and the winter and then how that changed maybe as we transitioned into spring ball and the spring game. So similar, but different, and I'll go into those reasons, similar in the sense of you're up early and you're up late, <laughs> different in the sense of you are not really catered or pampered to at all. And I'll go into that here. So we had a daily meeting, like I said, coach Toos had the strength and conditioning internship and each of the interns had to report to his office at about, at about 4.15 to 4.30 a.m. And as you can imagine, in the wintertime, you'd have to account for setting your alarm clock early. For me, I probably had to set like five or six alarms because I was so scared of oversleeping. Because so I'd be waking up probably about 3.30 to 3.45. That'd give me about 10 to 15 minutes uh, to eat, shower, get ready. And then it, one thing I did have to, have to account for in the winter was shoveling or you know making sure my car was um, removed with snow so I wasn't snowed in or blocked in uh, the night before if there was any snowfall so I had to kind of account for that too. heat up my car and, and drive over to the woody which only probably took me about two or three minutes uh, which was nice I didn't have to count for too much time and travel get there about 4 15 again the daily meeting started at 4 30 and we came together really to understand our role for that day and the goals of that day so each of us had a role underneath Coach Toos and the Coach Toos had a role amongst the strength and conditioning staff and the strength and conditioning staff had a role within the entire picture of Ohio State football. So they did a great job of operating at each level and kind of breaking it down uh, for each person that was kind of in that umbrella um, of the strength and conditioning staff. So again, I think the big thing for the strength and conditioning in terms was understanding where we needed to be, what we needed to do, and kind of figure out why we were doing it on the fly. You weren't necessarily given all the information in the world that you needed to complete it. It was almost like a sink or swim environment. You'd be given a little bit of information about what you needed to do, but it was up to you to kind of just figure shit out. 
And I, for me, I think that was really helpful because it's kind of like that pulling the bandaid off, just ripping it off and not having to um, get all of the details in advance or, or coddle you in any way. And so it might, it might be overwhelming at first. For instance, if you were to say, hey, I want this set up out in the field house on the turf and you didn't necessarily know where things were, the expectation is you weren't going to ask where that thing was that you needed to set up. You were just going to figure it out, whether it was talking with other interns that might've been there longer um, or maybe again, just kind of navigating and figuring it out on your own. Because you got to think too, the other interns had their role and then coach Toos also had his fair share of things that he had to complete before athletes were rolling in at the early time of 6 a.m. So to kind of burden someone else with your own task would take away from what they were doing and then would just back things up as a go. So in order to be as efficient as possible, again, that kind of figure shit out mentality was um, overwhelming, like I said, but something that bred efficiency as you became more comfortable. We'd finish with that daily meeting, 10 or 15 minutes. Um, we would reflect at that time from the day before. I think that was something that, you know, I'll continue to do. Even my practice now as a physical therapist and um, athletic trainer is figuring it out on the fly. Yes, that's important. Under, understanding why you're doing it. Yes, that's important. But also being to self evaluate, being able to evaluate and say, you know, was that the best way to do it? Um, things that you learned along the way in terms of how you can be better as an individual and as a strength and conditioning coach. And then you're also able to pull experiences from others that are going through it just the same as you are. So that was very helpful to kind of break things down. And if anything, even though it was 10 or 15 minutes, I was able to break um, kind of the fast paced tempo and kind of break it and slow it down a tad. So we'd go into the setup and depending on the day, there was an indoor and outdoor setup. We would have our own role. It would alternate each day. So if an intern or someone like myself was in the indoor on one day, uh, we'd be setting up plyo boxes, kettlebells, dumbbells. We'd be bringing up, bringing them to each station. Each strength and conditioning coach had uh, three or four racks in their own area. And so we were assigned to a strength coach and we'd have to go to that strength coach and say, you know, what would you like in your area? Um, because sometimes they were breaking down each athlete or group uh, position group, they would have them with a different coach. So the offensive alignment, as you can imagine, would be having heavier weights than your quarterbacks or your kickers or special teams um, members. So it's just kind of understanding the strength and conditioning coach, what position group they were basically assigned to or working with, and then what they needed. And it was really just serving them as, as much or as efficiently as possible. And then again, with the outdoor setup, that was more for the ent whole entire team. Um, usually there was a dynamic warm-up done out there. There were speed and agility drills set up. So whether it was cones set up for multiple stations, whether it was high or low hurdles, whether it was rip cords or resistance bands, um, or basically anything that they needed out there was our job to complete. Um, again, that all had to be done about, I think the expectation was about 5.30, 5.45, because there were athletes that would be coming in between, I'd say 5.45 and 6 o'clock. They'd be doing their foam roll, static stretch, whatever they wanted to do on their own before their lift started. So how, how Ohio State set it up, um, in the wintertime, the times might vary a little bit, but approximately it was about a 6 a.m. start. And then you'd have an 8 a.m., a 10 a.m. and a 12 o'clock lifting route. Again, that could change depending on the day, maybe depending on um, meetings or, or practice again as that progressed more through spring ball. But for the most part in the off season, it operated in that more barbershop style. And it was very helpful because it was able to have athletes or give the athletes an ability to go to one of these lifting groups, have all the time that they needed, but they were able to work around their class schedule. So if there was an athlete that had to go to classes from eight to two, that would, that would take up the 8 a.m., 10 a.m. and 12 p.m. lifting slots. That means they're able to still do their workout at 6 a.m., finish about 7.30 and still have time to go off into their class. Where on the flip side, if you had an athlete that operated more in like eight to 10 a.m., again, they can kind of work in that 6 a.m. or 12. They were assigned to a lifting group. They couldn't just pick and choose. Because if you are going to be late, then 
you know, there had to be some accountability. You couldn't just say, you know, oh, I'm going to come to the 6 a.m. lifting group, wake up 15 minutes late, and then go to the 8 a.m. and just say that you were coming to the 8 a.m. Well, you still have accountability to whatever group you were assigned to to begin with. So with the um, style, it was advantageous for the athletes, for sure. For the strength and conditioning coaches, I think it was great because then you're able to get athletes in groups, kind of short spurts, um, and able to kind of reach more instead of just working with one massive group. Um, you're able to get more of like a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the athletes in kind of more of a condensed controlled setting. But with that being said, you are coaching from 6 a.m. or 5.45 to about 12, 12.15. So as you can imagine, you know, you've started your day and you've already coached, you know, over six hours and it's only not even one o'clock. You haven't even had lunch yet. So it can be draining from that sense because energy is king in the weight room. And to be able to supply that energy for that amount of time is something that as weird as it sounds, it's almost learned in a sense. Like you have to almost teach your body how to do that. Um, not be loud all the time and, and not have purpose or intent behind what you're saying, but, but being able, able to draw back your energy and then give forth energy at appropriate amounts. So you're able to uh, give the athletes your best while they're in there. Cause that's another thing too. Each, each lifting group that you had, you had to give them your best and your best. That doesn't matter if it was 10 o'clock and you know, you weren't really feeling that great that day and you've already coached two lifting groups and you don't feel that great. The athlete is still requiring that elite standard. And so that's what you had to hold yourself to. And, you know, others, in the weight room did a great job of picking each other up if someone was feeling down. Once that 12 o'clock lifting time completed, um, again, whatever, whatever it was, their speed and agility or, or training session, there was a weight room breakdown. Again, you would revert back to whatever role that you had that day. If you were in the indoor, you went back to your indoor uh, coach's lifting area, you cleaned up their lifting area, um, you'd wipe down plates. And as easy as this sounds, as we, if we, when we go to commercial gyms, you know, just racking your weights seems to be a task for some people. This was taken to a whole new level. You had to make sure that all of the signage was facing the right direction. It all had to be facing out. The Ohio State Block O symbols on all of the plate weights had to be facing out. All of the plate weights, they were, um, had like the, the hexagon style to them they all had to be aligned. So there couldn't be, you know, they weren't circles, so they wouldn't just all slide and fit together. Um, as simple as that, they would have to all align by the edges. And again, they would all have to have the signage facing the correct area. The bar was set at a certain height each time on the rack. So were the hooks, so were the safety bar, and there were bands also attached to the racks that had to be at a certain uh, peg hole height from the ground. And it was all, it all came down to something that was repeatable and they were able to complete on a day in day out basis. And it would look the same if I were to do it or the head strength and conditioning coach would do it. Um, so I think that style was helpful in breeding a habit that was reproducible. And again, I think it was something that bred efficiency because you weren't just setting it up haphazardly. There was a method to the madness um, of setup and breakdown. So at, as that uh, breakdown subsided or was complete, um, you had to heat, eat on the fly. We had the luxury of utilizing the nutrition area just as the athletes did. So we would run up and try to grab food. We didn't necessarily have the time to just sit and hang out and, and chat amongst friends or, or athletes. Um, but we would try to sit with athletes as much as possible just to kind of show them another side of you, you know, because if you're kind of getting in someone's ear all morning, they might think that you don't like them, but you kind of have to try to get to know them on a personal level and, and open yourself up to show them that you're human and you're not just some robot, um, you know, hooting and hollering for six hours. So we'd eat again, maybe five, 10 minutes. We don't, you know, sometimes have to bring food down. Um, if there were any makeup lifts, maybe athletes were sick or injured and they weren't able to come in the morning or they had other circumstances like tests on campus, they would come maybe later in that one, one o'clock time, one or two o'clock time. Again, not many athletes, but still enough to have you come up and go out and supervise and, and coach them. 
Um, following that, following lunch, I would say about 12, 31 o'clock, we'd have data input. So every, I'd say most of what we did, um, whether it was times that the athletes completed certain agility trials in, or maybe there was performance, the performance testing was done that day, we'd have to input the data. We'd have to file it um, like a hard copy. We'd have to have that on file. So we'd have each athlete would have their own player file and we'd have to make sure that it coincided with what they did that day. And then we'd have to input the information into Excel in the Excel sheet. So for instance, if individual did a sumo uh, speed deadlift and they wanted it to, to be a certain weight, we would give an athlete that weight during the session. If we wanted them to go up or down in weight, we'd also write a note of that into the daily exercise log. And it wouldn't just sit on a piece of paper. It would have to go back into the Excel sheet. So that was tedious in itself. Um, helpful, yes. Time-consuming, also yes. <laughs> so I remember kind of going through that. You're, you know, tired already because you're starting to kind of get the, <laughs> the food coma of lunch and you've already been coaching for several hours. And then you have to kind of sit in front of a computer screen in this little strength and conditioning internship den that we had off. It was like a little wing off of the weight room there were no windows and you'd think sometimes there were no AC or, or heat. So you're in this room um, looking at a computer screen inputting and crunching numbers. And so you're, you're trying everything to stay awake and, you know, not necessarily look too far ahead because you knew that the day was still getting started and you had a lot else to do. Uh, so try to, you know, just kind of take that time for yourself, recollect your thoughts uh, maybe do a little bit of journaling during that time. And then while we were in that office, all the interns were in there. I, there was about maybe five or six of us at the time. We had a daily project that we might have to complete. Uh, maybe it was the Excel input from uh, the numbers that were completed during the lift that day, or maybe a semester project. We had to report on concussions, we had to do an in-service for the sports medicine staff at the end towards, I'd say a little bit closer in, in April uh, that coincided with uh, the spring game. So I, I want to say that's about like the 14th or 15th of April. So we had several months to work on it. We wanted to set aside a time each day to delegate roles and update each other on the information that we found regarding concussions and then piece it all together. Um, so we had set aside time for that. And then each of the interns had a secondary team coverage. So football was our primary, I wouldn't even say primary, but we were given that role um, to begin with. And then we also had a, another team that we had the opportunity to work with under a different strength and conditioning coach. Um, and I really appreciated that they didn't distinguish like Ohio State football. And then you might hear like the Olympic side or like football and then the Olympic side and the Olympic had to do with more of the Olympic sports. Um, but coach Mick had a great point. Um, him and Heather Mason that are the leads or the head directors of strength and conditioning. They said that they don't necessarily want that image because it's divisive in nature and they wanted it to just be Ohio state strength and conditioning. Everyone fell under that umbrella. Everyone was held to the same standard and operated as such. So I, I appreciated that because it wasn't like you were looking at the, you know, for me, it was women's softball. You weren't looking at it as like a secondary option. You were looking at it as like, hey, you know, this strength and conditioning coach is going to provide me tremendous insight. And I was looking forward to it because I'd never coached on the women's side before. And it's different, you know, than football in the sense that how you communicate information and how your coaching style might have to change um, and finding your voice in a new sport that I wasn't as familiar with. And Coach Quibido that I was paired with had a great history. And um, again, I was just trying to be a sponge throughout the whole process. So going into women's softball, again, I would work with her and say, you know, what do you need? I would set up whatever they needed for practice. They didn't need as, um, as many strength and conditioning interns. So it was just myself. As you can imagine, there's 110, 120 football athletes. Uh, softball, I, I don't necessarily know how many, maybe 30, 25, 35 athletes. Um, so again, from an athlete standpoint and coach to athlete ratio, um, was hoping to provide her with some value, able to give her another set of eyes. And then also to, to 
get the athletes where they wanted to be. And that was to maintain and uh, win a league championship. So that was, again, that time would change. That practice time would vary, but it would say about 2.30 to 4. And then I would grab a snack because I was also completing pro day training at the time with Coach Quinn, Zach, Elijah, and Trey. So that we, we all talked together. We were all staying in the Columbus area. We wanted to train for pro day. That was um, actually on my birthday, so March 22nd of 2018. And we decided that 4 p.m. to 6 p.m., um, Coach Quinn was also strength and conditioning coach for the football staff. So we were able to hash out a time four to six, still get training in. So that was an adjustment because I was going through, I was trying to lose weight. Um, I was also trying to have enough energy to train very intensely at that time. So I've noticed that I wasn't eating nearly enough. Crazy as that sounds for those of you that know me, know that I like my food and I like to eat and I, I like to eat a lot. And I was, burning so many calories from running around doing setup uh, being up so early and then uh, being active on the floor in the weight room and then also trying to put forth maximal effort in my pro day training i talked with sean our nutritionist and he's like yeah you're gonna have to up your calories and up your carbohydrates because once you're getting to your training you know you're not gonna you're gonna feel flat you're not gonna be able to hit the numbers you want hit the speed that you want and put forth, you know, your best, um, your best times and product in that training. So I, I took that advice and over probably about four or five weeks, I ended up feeling a lot better, but I remember absolutely dragging through some of those initial lifts because the style of training was different because we were more so training for the drills that the combine or the pro day combine would have. So it was the 40 yard dash, um, the pro shuttle, the three cone, the broad jump, the high or not high jump, the vertical jump, uh, the 225 bench press, and then your individual drills. So we were really training and tailoring towards the technique of those drills, which is a little bit different for football because football you're training for, I would say, you'd have more load and more demand on you because you'd be training um, whole body and then you'd be also going out into practice. And then you'd be completing any rehab that you might have too. So again, it was very much tailored to you and then tailored to the individual drills, which you're able to operate at a much higher intensity in the weight room because the stuff on field was more technique driven. So you weren't pushing a bunch of, of volume in that because you wanted to reduce injury and um, get to the pro day training healthy. Um, at about six o'clock, I'd have to skate over into the Ohio State team meeting room, we'd have a professional development meeting with Coach Toos or Coach Toos might bring in a guest speaker and they would talk about a myriad of different topics. Um, some of it was the National Strength and Conditioning Association, CSCS or Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist certification. So the goal was for those that were pursuing uh, becoming a strength and conditioning coach someday that they would obtain their CSCS um, either during their time there, because I was there for four months, it was common that most internships or most interns lasted um, six months to a year. That was the expectation most of the time. So if athletes were there for, let's say, or excuse me, interns were there for a year, then they would be expected to study and sit for the CSCS during that time. Um, would just make them more marketable and have that credentialing going forward, whether it was a GA or, or a full-time job after their, their internship. We'd have a rack cleanup about 7.30. There would be other athletes that would come and use the space. Doesn't matter, it was still our role. Uh, we didn't make sure everything was put away in the indoor training facility. And then also, again, we didn't make sure that the strength coach that we were assigned to, our racks were pristine. They would be checked. They would, you know, they would do the, the finger swipe on them to see if there was any dust on them. I remember that a few times. So you never knew when you were going to be evaluated. You always had to be at your best at all times because the one time that you would slip, it would be like that they knew and they would be able to, to point you out um, and hold you accountable for it. It's not to just be mean, but it's, you know, I think a lesson just in life that you don't know when the light is going to be shined on you because, you know, you're not in a sport. You don't have that 
um, that platform anymore. But to have that discipline on your own and everything that you do, people will notice that. But at the same time, people will look for you to slip that one time. And you don't want to give them that opportunity. And, and you know, in this case, I didn't want to give Coach Tuce that opportunity as much as possible. I mean, I was by no means perfect, but just trying to learn as I go and uh, do the best that I could. And then after our rack cleanup, we'd be blaring music during that time. Um, I'd be talking with or, or FaceTiming with my girlfriend or family because it would be a long day when, you know, you're not able to bring your phone out on the floor of the weight room. Um, and so that was really your time to kind of catch up and swing that scale back. You know, work-life balance is more of that sliding scale. I might've mentioned it in a previous episode on the podcast, but, you know, during the day, it is heavy strength and conditioning, Ohio State football, almost everything. But in the evening, you know, you can't just say, oh, I'm tired, I have to go to bed. There's still have other obligations and things that you have to attend to. So making time for that is, is equally as important, uh, not to just do it, but also, uh, to have mindfulness and, you know, otherwise just keep yourself sane. Obviously, if you're not talking to anybody else, only those inside the Woody, you kind of lose, uh, lose touch with reality because you, you don't really understand what's going on outside. Um, and so again, that's kind of a rough day in the life. I'd say four, I would say about four thirty to eight, nine o'clock is when you're clocking out. So very long days. Um, and again, you know, that spanned from Monday to Friday. And then Friday might have been more of like a three-quarter day. You'd finish maybe about four or five, or maybe after my pro day training at six. And then Saturday was a morning recovery makeup lift session that lasted maybe until two o'clock. The difference between winter and spring training, again, winter is the time that the strength and conditioning staff has primary um precedence on the athletes. So they're the ones that are with the athletes the most, I would say the most just in general throughout the entire year. Uh, but the position coaches are out recruiting during that time. That has changed nowadays. There's an early signing period that happens in December, but official signing day, at least my time there was like the top or first week of February. So most of the coaches were out recruiting during that time. So there'd be, you know, stints or spans of, you know, two, three, four weeks that you're not seeing your position coach. For me, I'm not seeing, you know, Coach Larry Johnson if you're on the defensive line. Um, so you really got to got to know the athletes, and then you really got to know, you know, each other as strength and conditioning coaches because that's, you know, all who is in the building. And again, um, the sports medicine staff was also there as well. For spring training, you had to work around individual practices. We alternated each day a day would be um, practice. So you would come in, you would have like a, I want to say you'd have to eat at seven o'clock. You'd have individual meetings, whether that was special teams or offense, defense, and then you'd have to set up for practice. So at, just as we were assigned to a strengthening conditioning coach, we were assigned to a position coach. So we would go to the position coach during spring practice or, you know, the week before, or day before practice, and we would say, you know, what do you need for practice? What do you need for your pre-practice routine? If it's stretch bands, um, if it's mini hip bands, if it's high or low hurdles, um, or if it's shields, or if it's, you know, certain uh, like dummies or pads. So we need to make sure that we had all of that out because when the athletes and coaches first come out on the field for practice, they go to a certain spot on the field. So the tight ends will go to a certain spot, offensive, defensive line, and, you know, like so with the other position groups, they'd be at kind of each area on the field. Um, so I was paired with the tight ends coach. Um, and then I would serve again, anything that they needed during practice. Um, and then also after practice, I would run them through their post-practice stretch. And the strength and conditioning, like in the weight room, how that would be altered was we would have a practice let's say on a Tuesday, Wednesday would be a lift of some sort that could be higher, lower intensity, just to, depending on um, how the athletes or how intense the practice was the day before. The following day on a Thursday would be another practice. Um, and then Friday, let's say that was a, maybe a little bit lighter lift because on, then on Saturdays, we would have scrimmages. 
and the scrimmaging was very intense. Um, I would say it would be intense more so for the younger guys uh, that were trying to earn a spot or, or earn a role on the team. Um, so again, that kind of was the undulating practice and weight room schedule. So we would have to kind of also work on the fly too. So I, like I said earlier, you kind of had to just figure stuff out as you go. Things would change. Sometimes you would go in expecting and setting up for an entire, maybe really intense lift. Uh, coach Mick might have change of plans. He might've talked with sports medicine staff or the head coach. And he said, Hey, you know, we're going to scratch that. We're going to do more of a recovery lift. You know, you're basically gonna have to put everything away that you just put out. And then you're going to have to, um, you know, just address and, and see what was needed for the recovery lift. Um, so just one example, but again, there was never a time that you were always comfortable or 100% knew what you were doing. So you always had to kind of go through that. You know, you complete something and then you double check what you're doing, because if you don't double check and let's say the athletes were starting to roll out and coach Mick noticed that, let's say the, the, strength and conditioning coach that I was paired with didn't have their shit together. That goes back on me. Not, not only does it go back on the strength coach that I'm paired with, but then the strength and conditioning coach that I'm paired with is looking at me like, Hey, you're getting, you know, my ass chewed out by coach Mick, but that's on you. So I really think that that was um, an intense side of being an intern that I didn't, that I wasn't going to expect. I thought that once I was an athlete, I kind of knew how um, the daily operations would work because I would be, you know, getting ready. I'd prepare for the lift as an athlete, you know, I'd go through the actual lift and then I would leave, you know, and then I was able to go about my day, but I wasn't able to see all the inner workings of, you know, the daily communication, operations, setup, breakdown, planning, and then a reevaluation again, that was, you know, very time intensive. Uh, I'd say that going through that spring and then finishing my internship, I was graduating in that, at that time. So the spring game was the last time that I had coverage with the team. I remember walking to the stadium with coach Julie, another strength and conditioning coach at the time. And that was probably the most peace that I had with the decision of walking onto the team almost throughout the entire process. It was awesome experience being on the team, participating as an Ohio State athlete um, and being able to have those memories that will last a lifetime. But the true piece was taking that love that I had for football and making something else out of it that wasn't necessarily sport related. It still catered to my love for sports. It still catered to the competitive nature that I still have, but it wasn't that unhealthy relationship where I need to have sports in order to be happy or in order to be successful. And I, you know, walking to that and being on the sidelines in a different role, I was standing there and it gives me the motivation to be back there someday. So that's, you know, another driving factor as to why I'm completing my master's in athletic training at Kent state is to have that on field, you know, be around the athletes 24 seven amongst the team. It gives me that, as a professional, instead of just longing or wishing for the past of me being an athlete, if that makes sense. It's a hard thing to articulate, uh, but that's probably the best way that I could think about it. Other lessons that I learned throughout that experience, um, really the importance of communication and the in communication, you, you're going to hear that like, oh yeah, it's very important to communicate, especially if you're in a business, you know, you want to communicate with others, but it's, it's not necessarily what you communicate, but it's how you communicate it. And there's got to be intent behind what you're saying as the communicator. If you're not clear, you have to understand that if there's something that goes wrong in whatever operation that you're trying to complete, it's not necessarily the person that received the, the information or the communication. You just have to look in the mirror and be able to self-evaluate, which is another thing that I learned is that that's got to be a constant process. You can't just self-evaluate, you know, after the first quarter, you know, at the midterm, or maybe after the year, it's got to be a daily thing, whether it's, whether it's journaling, whether it's, you know, a weekly reflection, whether it's doing a podcast, whatever that, that outlet is for you, understanding that there are ways for you to improve and you can't get 
defensive about people giving you that feedback. So it's just kind of having that openness and ability to self-reflect with the understanding that it's going to take you to where you want to go. You might not understand it in the moment, but again, I think that daily evaluation gives you that springboard to whatever goal that you're looking for. And, and, and along with the professional lessons, um, really energy is king. I, I said that same phrase earlier, but as a strength and conditioning coach, as a strength and conditioning intern, for me, I did not know everything. I still do not know everything, but athletes will feed off the energy and how you make them feel. So if you're giving off very positive um, energy, if you're able to communicate in a positive manner, if you're able to love up on the athlete and get to know them as an individual, then what you're telling them to do when you're, you know, when you might be chewing them out, they understand that you have a relationship that goes beyond you just being, you know, maybe in their eyes negative in that moment. So again, energy is absolutely king in the strength and conditioning world. And along with that, I'm not necessarily one that was going to yell. I think that athletes can see right through that. You need to find your voice and how you give off that energy. For me, it was being able to empathize with the athletes, to know what they were going through, to say like, you know, to go up to an athlete that I see is struggling and be like, hey, I know exactly how you're feeling. We got a couple more. Just focus on this rep right here. I wasn't necessarily yelling. I didn't feel comfortable yelling. And that's totally fine if you're in that same boat too. There's other coaches Coach Nico, amazing strength and conditioning coach. That dude can make you run through a brick freaking wall. His energy, he's able to communicate. He's able to use his loud bellowing voice to motivate. And that is his style. He also loves you up on the back end too. Like he has the whole package. For me, I was like, well, if I'm going to try to mirror or copy and paste someone else's style, that's not really true to me. And I think that, you know, it's kind of staying true to myself and my coaching style is just as important, um, you know, in my pursuit to, you know, being a strong strength coach. Um, so I think like, again, I think that's something that as a new professional in this industry, it's, you know, you're trying to learn on the fly and you look around you to see how other people are doing it and you implement it, you know, as if it's your own, but that necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean that it's optimal for you. And along with that, it's a very chaotic environment. Um, we'd always say it was a controlled chaos, but you know, things are flying, you know, people are going hundred million miles an hour a second, given maximal effort. Um, it's very intense in the weight room and on the field because, you know, people are competing for livelihoods at the end of the day, especially now with name image likeness and the ability to, you know, transfer at the, drop of a hat or even go to the national football league or, or play professionally, people are competing for a spot and not only a spot, but that ability to get recruited at the next level or to be seen at the next level. So in order to help them out, you're not able to give a huge dialogue of information on how to perform a squat or how to perform um, the technique in a sprint. You have to operate on sound bites of information. You have to, and the sound bites of information what I mean is if someone's completing a squat, I'm not going to say, you know, make sure your knees don't collapse and go into knee valgus and your foot pronates down and, you know, you rotate your shoulders left and your chin, you know, you can't micromanage. You almost have to give the athlete the minimal amount of information necessary for them to complete the task because athletes are exceptional at taking information they can compensate, but at the same time, they can adapt it very fast too. So being able to understand that you're, information has to be short and succinct and you have to practice this. It's not something that you can just, you know, just use other coaches cues. For instance, you know, in a squat, it's chest up, butt back, knees out. Three things, quick checklist, athlete can go through that in their head. They can conceptualize that and then they can, you know, be successful and understand, you know, then maybe, for instance, when the athlete is racking the weight and you come out, you can explain the why. But in the moment when they're under intense load or maybe they're uh, very fatigued, they're not going to be able to hear all of these minute details. So for me, I would be recording myself and hearing back how it sounded. And 
if, if you guys recorded yourselves, I hate how I sound. So even doing a podcast and stuff, because once I listen to it back, you know, it's like, oh, that's how I sound like, really? But being able to take those cues, refine how you're saying them, and also the energy that you're putting behind it will also will make it so much easier because you're not trying to figure that out in the heat of the moment on the floor in the weight room. You've already had that hashed out. You can refine it as you go, but you know, for the most part, you have the meat and potatoes of what you're trying to say. And for the different tasks or the different exercises that we'd have athletes do, I highly recommend that you as a strength and conditioning coach or as a personal trainer, whatever it may be, shoot, even physical therapist, athletic trainer, do the task before implementing on the athlete. That's not to say that you have to, you know, for an example, in a, a basketball reference, but you'll see LeBron James posting his, you know, crazy, insane workouts, Alvin Kamara posting crazy, insane workouts. They are professional athletes for a reason. They're able to do things that a lot of people just can't do. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to limit what you're giving an athlete based on what you can or can't do. So for example, like, so for instance, if I, you know, my shoulder, I have a history of shoulder injuries, shoulder surgeries, because I adapt to my training a certain way. doesn't mean I have to have that same bias when I'm prescribing exercises for a team or an individual athlete or just someone, a patient going through rehab. I have to be able to look through that at the same time, if I'm giving an athlete something, I should understand and know what it feels like to do that movement, to do that repetition and to perform that activity in order to have a better understanding of what the athlete should or shouldn't be feeling. If the athlete says, should I be feeling this? Well, in your head, you might have an idea of what that is or isn't, but if you haven't done it yourself, then you're not going to be able to accurately answer that. And again, you might be putting that athlete at risk, maybe not in the short term, but in the long term, if they're completing an exercise and they're saying, yeah, I'm really feeling this in the front side of the knee. I mean, I don't know. Is that activity for your quad? Is it for the hamstring? So I, I think for you, in order to be able to feel it, I think also helps your ability to give cues. And you can say, you know, if they're doing a step up for you, if your, your goal is to loading the hip, you can say, hey, you're going to try to step up here. You're going to push down through the box but primarily you should be feeling it in your hip, giving the athlete an idea of, okay, I'm not feeling that for instance, but this is what I should be feeling. And then they're able to adapt the actual technique in order to achieve the outcome that the strength and conditioning coach is looking for. Um, so I, I think that's huge because otherwise I think you look like a fraud. If you're not able to perform a demonstration of the activity, then the athlete's going to be like, well, then why are you expecting me to do it? And I think it just, goes against you creating buy-in for the athlete because they're going to be like, well, if you can't do it, why should I do it? Um, again, and when you're trying to make an impact on 17 and 24-year-old athletes, that's huge because you want to show them that you're taking it seriously and that you can do it. And you know, you're also operating at a, a high level on the physical side in your own training. And then to kind of tie it uh, to where I'm at professionally now and the relevance to physical therapy, is really just being able to bridge it to sport performance and understanding the demands of the sport again, but also to being able to communicate. And I know I touched, I, I'm using my lesson learned again for this area, but communicating with the strength and conditioning coach, but being able to use the same terminology to not maybe call a exercise by a different name, you know, that can change program to program, coach to coach but more so understanding like intensity, load, some of those like intrinsic or extrinsic vari variables of training, um, knowing how to periodize, whether it's like linear progression or undulating or conjugate or, you know, French contrast training. Um, being able to also have that in mind, because if you're com communicating with the strength and conditioning staff and you're trying to maybe get that athlete to hire stages of their return to sport program, then you can maybe be implementing if, you know, if the strength and conditioning staff is, you know, implementing French contrast training, which we can go on into that in another, another episode, but you can implement that you have an idea of what that is. And so you're able to do that or mirror that in some way, maybe not as intense, but give the athlete a taste of what they'll be getting back to if they're very, very close to returning. So all of those, I would say, you know, um, 
like the professional lessons and, and the lessons learned, they tied into physical therapy. But I think that's one that has really stuck out to me. And I think at the end of the day, the the personal connection piece is something that I've also gravitated towards quite a bit. Uh, just being able to relate to the athlete and letting them know that, you know, they're more than an athlete too. Like being able to empathize with individuals that have injuries because I was there too, you know, just as, you know, much as it is physical, it is mental and things that I battled with, you know, I might be kind of putting myself out there, but, you know, putting the, put myself out there for the athlete's benefit to understand that, you know, the feelings that they might be having maybe are warranted, maybe not, uh, but you're feeling them and, you know, there's ways to work through it. And I might not have all the answers, but at least, you know, I'd hope to identify that and be able to refer to, you know, sports psychologist or, um, you know, able to just be an outlet for that athlete too. So I think too, that's also kind of given me an interest in the psychological readiness, um, especially with return to sport. Um, I think, you know, in physical therapy, we're very objectively driven and trying to figure out, okay, you know, what does this athlete need to do physically in order to go back? But, you know, understanding that if an athlete's not ready mentally and, and needs to kind of work through some things on a mindfulness side. And then I just think that, you know, addressing those areas is what's best and will keep the athlete safe for longer. So I will uh, wrap up with that for the most part. I think for me, it was, it's always fun going back and reflecting on different times of, of my experience at Ohio state. And I think this one has been one that I've not really talked about it a whole lot. I've, I refer to it um, in my professional uh, career in physical therapy. I always mention how I want to, bridge the gap between physical therapy and sport performance, but I've been leaving out a critical component of that. It's my experience with the Ohio State strength and conditioning staff. So first, you know, and foremost, I'd like to thank those on the strength and conditioning staff, Coach Nico, Coach Mick, Coach Toos, Coach Quinn, and Coach Yuli. Um, and again, the other strength and conditioning terms I was with, you know, can't thank, thank them enough for kind of pulling me through and understanding, you know, my shortcomings and pitfalls. And um, again, kind of making me the individual that I am today and put and pushing me also after the internship and even, you know, today, the awesome friendships that I've had uh, moving forward and then I can always count on. So again, if you guys have any questions about this particular experience that more than happy to talk to you about it individually, or even make another episode on. Um, and again, thank you for tuning in to episode six of what the fans don't see podcast.